Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hyperthesis Podcast for our episode 24 on some chaos theory. I'm Patrick. I'm Feely. And I am Liam. Okay, we have a very exciting episode for you today, but uh, just a warning, it might be chaotic, uh, both in topic and in terms of many of the terms that we will be using today. So just as a warning, um, we'll, we'll try our best to explain. But before we get into our main topic, uh, I believe that we have some, I guess, continue conversation from last week to discuss. Yes. So last week, we talked about atmospheric optics, and I won't get into all that. Um, but we, we described a phenomenon known as sundogs, which are these kind of bright rainbow-like spots slash streaks that can appear um, to the left and right of the sun in certain conditions due to the refraction of light from ice crystals in the atmosphere, uh, sometimes in the lower atmosphere too. And... Me and Patrick talked about, I, I think I said that they're due to the refraction of light through hexagonal ice crystals, but then you also said that you thought um, it'd been recently shown that they were the refraction of light through cubic ice crystals. Um, so it turns out that we, 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 were, we made a mistake. Um, they are, in fact, formed through the refraction of light through flat hexagonal ice crystals, and that kind of... There's this 22-degree halo we talked about, which is also formed through hexagonal ice crystals, but they're kind of column-shaped. So that explains why the sundogs appear on top of that. Um, you were, I think you were actually thinking of a different thing, which was pretty interesting and led me down this rabbit hole. Um, some, something, what's it called? Oh, yeah. This, this, there's this type of halo that's super rare called Shiner's Halo, or a 28-degree halo. Um, opposed to the 22 degree halo we talked about last time. And that, so that involves cubic ice crystals. And I looked into this and I had a hard time finding material discussing it. Um, but after digging fairly deep, I found some of these lesser known papers and some forums where people were actually talking about it. Um, so I'll try and find a picture of one and post it. Um, but they're pretty rare. I'll try and post it to the Instagram page, I should say. Um, so I'll try and summarize quickly the overall deal with this Shiner's or this 28-degree halo and what I learned about it, and actually what I learned about um, ice crystals as well from it. So most of these ice halo optical phenomena we see in the atmosphere are from hexagonal-shaped ice crystals, um, but there's all kinds of different ice crystals which can form in the atmosphere, it turns out, which cause other different things. So there's actually other rare types of halos. There's like a 9 degree, an 18 degree, a 20 degree, 23, 24, 35, which are, um, they've been recorded and they, they kind of form due to these pyramidal shaped ice crystals. So they kind of look like these fancy gemstones and they have all these different faces. They're not a trivial shape, I guess. So I found this 1983 publication titled Shiner's Halo, Evidence for Ice I See in the Atmosphere by the chemist E. Uh, Wally, I think that's how it's pronounced, um, and I'm not sure what the E stands for, unfortunately, but it's probably one of the first, or 
if not one of the first papers, which talks about this 28-degree halo and how it could possibly form. So I guess like hundreds of years ago, people would see a few, there have been like four or five known sightings, or sorry, six or seven known sightings of this 28-degree halo. And this chemist, um, he, he talks a little bit about the history of this phenomenon and how one type of ice called ice IC or cubic ice could be the cause of it. Um, so in his introduction, he says, and I quote, Shiner's halo is a rare halo that occurs about 28 degrees from the sun or moon. It was first reported by Shiner more than 350 years ago, and it's been confirmed several times since, but no convincing explanation has been proposed. Um, he then goes on to say, the purpose of this report is to suggest that Shiner's halo is caused by light passing at an, passing the angle of minimum deviation through octahedral crystals of cubic ice. Ice I see. So he, he goes on to physically describe how this would happen through this cubic ice um, in order to give a theory that matches these rare sightings. And a big point of this work, kind of like the main point, I think, is that um, if, if, if you can look at these 28-degree halos and it matches the theory that he puts forward, then that's actually the first evidence that cubic ice occurs naturally and that liquid water can freeze to ice icy. And so apparently this can't happen. Apparently um, this cubic ice is difficult to make, um, and it's it, it doesn't form naturally very easily. So I, I went down this rabbit hole of ice, and we should talk about this one day, because I think Feely might have some more stuff to say on it. But um, turns out there's a whole bunch of different kinds of ice. And like on, if you Google ice and look at the wiki page, there's 23 different kinds alone there, uh, cubic ice being one of them. And it turns out that cubic ice has only recently been created in the lab, I guess. At least a decent amount of it, I'm not sure. I, had to, I didn't read into that too much. Um, but I found a few more publications, too, that build upon this idea, discussing the likelihood that cubic ice can form in nature in the atmosphere, and how these 20-degree halos are a visible indication that, um, they, that the cubic ice is in the atmosphere and you know they did some chemistry some entropy stuff some stability stuff to see if this was theoretically possible and they concluded that it should be although it would be pretty rare and i found a one paper that was actually published in 2020 titled ice goes fully cubic and they talk about how this cubic ice has only been recently experimentally produced in the lab um but now that it has, we have a better door to understanding ice and whether or not it can form in the atmosphere and create this 28-degree halo. So I went down a deep rabbit hole. That sounds like quite the rabbit hole. And it's, a, it's so cool that something so basic as ice has so many advanced forms, like 10 different types or however many different types of ice alone. I should also mention that I found a 1986 publication, which kind of was a direct shot at this um, Wally publication. It was titled Shiner's Halo, Cubic Ice, or Polycrystalline Hexagonal Ice. So th these authors basically argue that cubic ice is difficult to form. Um, so why is it's probably these 20 degree halos are not formed by cubic ice. And they kind of propose this theory um, that the 28 degree, degree halo is formed through good old regular hexagonal ice crystals, but through a specific orientation. So it's because different orientations of these ice crystals in the atmosphere produce different things. 
Um, so they actually showed that a 28 degree halo could also form through their kind of orientation approach, saying that if cubic ice is so uncommon and hard to create, it probably doesn't form in the atmosphere in enough numbers to create a significant enough 28 degree halo. Um, but from what I could tell, the cubic ice is the best theory at the moment. It's the more accepted one, and it's got it. It seems to be more plausible to me. Um, but I, I, I don't know. So that's that's a cool example of how these atmospheric optical phenomena you can use them to kind of learn about um, smaller things in nature, actually, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, and these are very interesting rabbit holes to fall down. I think one day we might have to try and convince one of our former professors to come and talk about ice and water, uh, and especially the simulations that can be done with them, because these are insane, honestly. It's crazy to think that something so common can be so complicated. And uh, we did have a former professor that studied this, um, really worked with him for a little bit. So that might be a very interesting conversation to have one day. On to an interesting conversation for today uh, is the topic of chaos theory. So there's a lot of talk about chaos, whether it's your house being a mess or going back to the beginning of the universe. But chaos theory is something that is, I guess, prevalent throughout um, media and just kind of there's this general knowledge that, hey, there's something called chaos and it, it exists. But it is something that's very prevalent in physics. I believe Liam has talked about it a few times in the past. And today we are going to be focusing on chaos. Yeah, when I think of chaos, I always think of um, the, the guy from Jurassic Park, the mathematician and the chaos theory kind of stuff he talks about. But I think Feely has, uh, has a lot to say on this. Uh, so chaos is in popular media is very different or as you know it is you know people think of a bunch of randomness and randomness is somehow associated with chaos a lot which i i thought for a long time it's like you know if you think like oh man my room is so chaotic you know things all over the place but once i learned about um chaos in science in physics in math is quite different than what i thought which may maybe is a good thing so chaos in physics is is more well defined is basically in in the mathematical terms one of the main feature of chaotic system is sensitivity to initial conditions what that means that initial condition is basically how you set up the system. So if you want to put, um, you know, when you build something, you put building blocks together, and where you first put it, that is the initial condition. Chaotic system, on, on the other hand, if you move one of the building blocks slightly, just very slightly, so the initial condition when you set it up is slightly different, the outcome of the product of the entire system looks completely different. So that is just the chaos mean. It's not really about randomness. It's in the opposite way, actually. Because chaos works on what we call the deterministic system. So deterministic system is a system where you can have an equation of motion or some 
set of equations that describe where things are or how things behave exactly. So we talked about quantum mechanics, which you know is a more uh, probabilistic um, theory where you know you don't know exactly where things are. You know the probability probability distribution of where things are likely to be, and chaos don't operate in the what they call the stochastic world. So probability it it, it operates on deterministic world or deterministic systems. Uh, I guess a good way, just as a very simple example to describe a chaotic system, uh, if you think about a pendulum, so say a grandfather clock, uh, it just has one point of contact and it swings back and forth. And it's so regular and so predictable that we use pendulums to measure time, such as in a grandfather clock. However, if you take that pendulum and add another pendulum to the end and then try and swing it, it's almost impossible to predict how it will swing. And that in itself has become uh, a chaotic system. So that's just something for you to visualize if you've ever seen a double pendulum, um, what a chaotic system kind of looks like in the real world. Chaotic system, yes, like uh, Patrick said, as keyword, I, I, I like the predictability. So a chaotic system is very difficult to predict it doesn't mean it's impossible to predict because it's oh some chaotic systems are because it depends on how sensitive it is to the initial condition. If you know exactly to how it's set up, you can predict it because at the end of the day, it's a deterministic system. However, it's really challenging to acquire that information. You know, imagine you have the, the double pendulum you talk about. If I know exactly this place and velocity of, of each pendulum, I can I know exactly what the behavior should be. But if you want to try to create a predictive model to describe that, and if you don't know your position or velocity to the like point C or C or C or C or C or one or like very precise resolution, the results would be quite different. There's some there's some really good videos on YouTube of uh, like simulations or even like actual experiments people have done on double pendulums where they they sh they they set they set up the system with some initial condition and they let it evolve and you see how crazy it gets but then they change that initial condition by like you know a millimeter or something and it it gives a completely completely different outcome so i would recommend looking into that yes uh, before we get on to those examples actually um so i want to talk a little bit more about chaos that you know, people actually coined the term deterministic chaos, which to me is a little paradoxical because you know, chaos deterministic, but but it's technically true because chaos work on the deterministic system. But the, so the, but there's no need to say it. It's by definition, it has to be deterministic system. And some people coined it uh, the word stochastic chaos when, well, quote unquote, chaos work on stochastic system which doesn't make much sense by construction. So people think that um, deterministic systems don't have the stochastic part, but actually you can. You can add some randomness to, randomness to the deterministic system, but that doesn't mean it creates chaos. For example, there is this type of motion, the random motion called Brownian motion. So these things are used to describe, imagine like you know, a bunch of molecules 
in a gas or liquid just moving around. We just call those kind of randomness the Brownian motion. But you can add it to the deterministic system, but it doesn't make it chaotic. Actually, there is this um, this guy, Longevere, who this, um, found this theory to describe this called Longevere theory or Longevere equation, which is a set of differential equations, basically including stochastic noise onto this kind of deterministic equation. Yeah, it's, it sounds kind of, you know, a lot of words throwing out. But if you think of um, stochastic, like, you know, in, in your head, think of like quantum mechanics, bunch of probability, right? So even if you know how it works, like the Schrodinger equation, you don't really know exactly where it is. In fact, like the Heisenberg uncertainty actually <laughs> uh, support that, that you, you don't really can know exactly where and how fast it is to the exact precision every time or like all the time. Yeah, so the problem with chaos is it's unpredictable and because we don't really know the absolute to the absolute precision of the initial condition. And more about that is chaos. I learned all this through my, my colleague and friend Hajir, who studied a little bit of chaos. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I have an interesting question about, um, it's not the pilot wave theory, is it? It's the theory, it's the hidden variable theories in quantum mechanics, opposed to the Copenhagen interpretation. So hidden variable theory is kind of the idea that um, instead of this probabilistic quantum mechanics, it's the idea that there's actually things going on at a very, very tiny scale, which we can't measure, which if you knew those, you could predict exactly how the system works. Is that is that an example of like, if that were true? And I, again, there's this whole, this Nobel Prize thing we talked about, which kind of disproves local hidden variable theories. Um, whatever that means, go go watch that episode to find out. But is 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 somehow a hit low, uh, hidden variable theory just like applying chaos to quantum mechanics to understand probability? I don't know. In a way, because um, I was gonna talk about in the next my next point is about variables and parameters, right? So so chaos actually one of the main reason that chaos comes is high dimensionality so if you have a lot of particles or or if you have a lot of variables chaos are expected to appear uh, but let's talk a little bit about what it means to what it means to be a variable so there are two things um, that are kind of on the opposite end we call variables and parameters or you can think of these things on the opposite end, like uh, continuous and discrete, or you can have um, stochastic and deterministic. So, but not in the same way, but variables and parameters, if you imagine in your head, uh, this is for the mathematician and physicist, an equation of motion, or Schrodinger's equation, any of those equations, you know, x dot dot, or Newton's equation, second law of motion, x dot dot equal, a times x, right? And a is some kind of operator. So we call x a variable and we call a a parameter. So parameters is basically tells you how the systems are going to go. And we use this in everything, actually. Like Schrodinger's equation has Hamiltonian and energy and stuff as parameter. But 
Chaos is not the theory about changes in parameters. Chaos is when variables change, and people get confused sometimes. You have to be really careful because when parameters change, and the theory that describes that is bifurcation, which Liam is familiar with, and all about that is about how parameters uh, turn into a different um in a different. Have different set of solutions and whatnot, but what really is about chaos is when the variables itself change because variable itself signifies dimensions. And imagine if you have, if I said x, right? But that x, if I change the x into a vector of x and y, then I have higher dimension, or I can change that x into three-dimensional vector x, y, z. Add more dimensions to so it. So by bifurcations, the way I'm used to them is in this theory called catastrophe theory, which is different than chaos theory. But people struggle with that. I get a lot of people asking me about chaos theory, and I'm like, oh, I don't know much about that. But bifurcations are typically your variables suddenly change discontinuously, but for a given parameter. And as you change that parameter, the change the the location they bifurcate at. So if you have like one solution to an equation it'll split into two suddenly somewhere but then if you change that parameter then that splitting will move position and it kind of shifts around that's the way i'm used to talking about so like the variables do change in a sense but kind of based on parameters so well i th i think this is okay let me explain it differently so small change in parameters create this by it create bifurcation but for chaos, that small change in variable makes the system mm. go very differently, right? So, so bifurcation is when you change parameters and system go wild. But chaos is when you change variables and system go wild. So I think this makes more sense. It's <laughs> like, you know, our example for the chaotic system, like, oh, we move things a little bit, right? And that's not changing parameter that's changing the variable yeah i guess in like a double pendulum the variable is like you know your initial condition you moved a little bit and things change but the parameter would be like the length of the the rods that are attached to the pendulum you can change those but that's not what you really care about in a double pendulum yes yeah mm -hmm. and that would be changing parameters and it it may bifurcate i'm not i'm not, i don't know i don't study catastrophe theory <laughs> but my point is um, high dimensionality actually introduce chaos. If you think of you know, the phenomenon you hear a lot, it's, think of the butterfly effect, right? You shake this small thing and, and 10,000 years later, oh my God, everything changed. But because it becomes like that, because we have so, so many particles, like so many dimensions, right? When you try to change one thing that one thing affect two things and two affect four four eight it can go exponential like that or not exponential but imagine you change small thing that affects a lot of things then that can create a lot of chaotic systems but that's not very interesting because we know that high dimensions always usually have chaos anyways what's interesting are those systems that have low dimensions but still have chaos like we talk about the double pendulum. The other one that's more common is the three-body problem, is where you know, 
if you think of one body problem, what I mean by that, if you have a particle, a ball, or an object, it, you can describe it really well. And then if you have two body problem, you have two balls and attracted to some, each other, something like you know, two planets, we can describe them very, very well too. Then we get to three balls or three planets, and then things look, get a little finicky. Because it's one, if one planet moves a slightly bit, you know, if I set up three planets in a triangle, good, whatever. But if I and make, get it, give it some velocity, right? If I move one of the thing by a little bit, just a little bit, you know, the, the outcome can be quite drastically different than what we expect because this also exhibits some chaotic just because we asked dimension yeah, I, I, to it. I always thought that was interesting because as an undergraduate, I always thought, why can't we like perfectly predict, you know, the or like we can predict very well the orbits of planets and stuff but then once you get more moons and asteroids and whatever involved i was always like well it's just newton's laws can't you just throw it in a computer and you can but technically like the the chaos that adding each body it, it just gets so computationally heavy that even though it's deterministic like you don't know the initial conditions and it, it's impossible on some level you have to make lots of approximations and input new data all the time so that's very interesting yeah, some of my friends were doing teaching assistant on this course that uh, do like computer modeling, and one of the assignments was to the three body problem, but it's really difficult to grade because you have so they have to give them the exact exact initial condition to the floating floating point of the computer because if you move it a little bit, the trajectory they get will be different, and it's kind of funny that's like every single number in your code has to mash so you have the same result you get like 20 decimal points or something like that something ridiculous yeah because even like you have to be careful because computer has this sort of like a floating point fluctuation you know you know a little bit of coding where when you say a number is one you know one point zero 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 it's not it's not exactly that right there's this, this um electric electronic fluctuations that change your numbers like slightly and that is one of the reasons why quantum computing is so hard but we talk a little bit about about that in the you know the quantum computing episode i i just i just wanted to quickly make a note about what we said earlier about how somehow catastrophe theory and and, and chaos theory how are they related they're kind of the opposite of one another and i'm not going to waste your time and get into that but Catastrophe theory is kind of like looking at how th at structurally stable things, so things that are stable against perturbation. And chaos theory is kind of like the opposite, where you change something a little bit and it becomes unpredictable. Um, and I think, spoiler alert, uh, we're going to get a guest next episode who will maybe talk about the difference between them a little bit, but I won't, I won't get into that now. Yeah, so... Um... The other factor that can contribute to chaos is nonlinearity. And this is what I think most people won't get into until graduate school, because fortunately, the, all the classes in theory we do in undergrad or up until undergraduate level are linear. That's why we start learning linear algebra, which is one of the most crucial uh, theory to learn. Um, you think of quantum mechanics, they're just all linear algebra. In, it, 
it you can add nonlinearity to it. You know, you can do nonlinear optics. You can do those stuff, but that's usually not in the undergraduate level. So the world up until uh, up to grad school is really quite limited to this easy, easy to solve system where you know things are nice. Even though sometimes it doesn't look that nice, <laughs> oh, like oh, I'm solving quantum mechanics, but we know that our world is not linear, right? There's not not everything is linear. Linear just mean you know. Remember the equation y equal m x plus b. You can use that to describe a lot of things in life, but you can also see that why a lot of things are not linear. And theory that describe things are nonlinear are quite difficult because sometimes, sometimes you have to deal with chaos. So, you know, luckily we don't have to deal with that until, like us, have to, you know, be careful of what system you choose. One more example of thing that can be chaotic is fractals. Fractals are quite related to chaos. If so, if you are not familiar with fractals, fractals are shapes or geometric object that uh, have the subset of it that repeats itself. So, if you think of that triangle, that inside a triangle, and in each triangle inside a triangle has more triangles in it. So, a bunch of triangles you probably have seen it before, or maybe you have heard of the Mandelbrot set, which is a mathematical. Said that describe kind of this fractal behavior, but if you think about it, you know, if I draw that the, the triangles inside triangles fractal thing, if I pick one side of it, right, let's call it, you know each side, and I slightly mo- move the, um, like slightly lo- rotate one of the side by like two degrees, the entire fractals would look different. So a small change in one side, it's not much, change the entire scheme of the fractal. Um, so this also come out of the fact that chaos come from this repetitive uh, operations. You know, if I say I'm gonna take this, um, I think there also this in business some logistic equation do the same thing where you keep applying the um, same equation. Anyway, you can keep applying the same um, operation to certain variables. So let's say I have this length, and this operation is to to do something to this length by you know make it to triangle or something, and you apply that many times, like from one to two triangle to three triangle to five triangle to ten to a million triangle, and that's the output. And if I change the input by a little bit, because you Perform that operations over that thing many times, the output could be quite different. Excuse me. There's a the logistics equation is kind of this recursive equation, and it's actually very much related to the Mandelbrot set um, and bifurcations as well. Which I think there's this really good Veritasium video on YouTube. I always talk about videos because I don't know. There's some really good people out there who make some really good videos where. So there's there's this Veritasium video where he talks about the logistics equation and kind of bifurcations and how it's very much related to the Mandelbrot set and fractals. Um, so to to chaos in some sense, I guess. Yeah, because chaos is is make it sound like 
yeah. not what it is. <laughs> well, because to me, chaos is is like I said, it's more about like the behavior of the system, not the results. People think of chaos more of the result of big fluctuations, right? But to me, it's 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 um that type is a type of behavior instead of what the results would look like. Because if you think of um this one and another chaos thing is uh Lawrence attractor. So I don't know if anyone have seen this before. It's a bunch of concentric circles, like two two groups of concentric like ellipses, not really circles, that form this kind of butterfly shape thing. If you think of um I don't know what's the example of Lawrence attractor in real life, but you probably have seen that in some mathematical figure or something that's look or like in, in front of the textbook, you know, there is uh, this kind of like two egg-shaped uh, bunch of ellipses that form um, what we call it, Lorentz Attractor. And Lorentz Attractor is, of course, created by Lorentz to describe this kind of atmospheric convection. So convection is how air um, basically move and uh, and transfer heat the heat convection or or just the air moving around in atmosphere and people want to try to describe that so they came up with a set of three um ordinary differential equation whatever that means <laughs> so the three equations see well let's say three calculus equations that describe this type of system and it turned out that you know it's really hard to predict exactly the trajectory of a particle that follow that equation and you find this shape where you know maybe you want to go to the left side you change initial condition a little bit you maybe want to go to the right side and this kind also have this chaotic system but what in is interesting about that is that even though we cannot predict really well or control where exactly particles are, we are somewhat able to control the region of where the solutions would be. So instead of trying to control or predict exactly where each part, like where the particle is, we predict the region or the area where this kind of chaos would reside. So that is an, I think, an interesting way to think about chaos as more more of a what's it called more of a journey than the result right than the end because chaos is about analyzing how things how the journey worked um anything to add liam that's an interesting thought there's this phenomenon known as branched flow and i definitely don't know much about it but basically it's like imagine this line moving forward and it kind of blows up into a tons of little mini lines. And the lines spread out and they keep moving forward, but they all kind of spread apart and go in various directions. But what can happen with this phenomenon is that like the a lot of the lines will coincide and you'll, you'll get like kind of thicker lines and smaller ones. And, and it, it looks like tree branches, which is why they call it this. Um, so in... In the context of one of my coworkers' research, this branch flow is in term of like probability. So you get these like trajectories of probability. And what ends up happening is that the focusing of a bunch of these gives you kind of like 
the most likely path while you get these kind of branched little tiny paths that are unlikely and you get this the the, the branch it's like you're forming these stable trajectories um which look like these tree branches where you get like some maybe like three main trajectories which are most likely but in between you get all these little branches of like unlikely trajectories and somehow it it's you have this stable stuff and as you change um certain initial conditions or parameters or whatever what ends up happening is that everything kind of just goes off to chaos becomes chaotic and these stable trajectories kind of diffuse into again not randomness because it's they're kind of deterministic but it appears random so i thought that was interesting that you said um how'd you word it again you said that it's not you think of chaos as not the end result but I forget exactly what you said, but yeah, the journey. journey. That, that's what that reminded me of was this branch flow. And I, 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 again, I probably got, got it wrong, but that's roughly what's happening with it. Just to, I guess, advocate for the other side that it might be the destination and not the journey. Um, I know a lot of, I guess, chaos simulations try and look for where a chaotic system goes to some sort of steady state. So for example, for mm. turbulence in the atmosphere or in water, um, there's a lot of interest in trying to figure out, okay, how does this turbulence affect whatever is, say, moving through um, this medium? And when does that turbulence essentially die down and go back to uh, the original steady state before, um, say, an object passed through a medium? So uh, a great example is the turbulence that caused as an airplane comes to land on a runway. There's a lot of turbulence and vortices and all this stuff that happens in the air around the airplane as it comes to land, and that's a really big issue for another plane coming into land because that causes instability. And so people are interested in figuring out, okay, when does this instability become stable again? Yeah, I think I had touched on that a little bit because... Like I said, we are not trying to control or predict exactly where things are, but we try to predict where the area that that the solutions would be. So that would be what what they try to do, right? They don't care about what each particle do in the turbulence. They care about what area would the turbulence what's would be created. Because it's really hard to describe the turbulence anyways, but if we know the region where it's likely or like the or because it's deterministic, where the turbulence would have solutions in, um, we can predict that. And I think that's a, I think that's a good kind of usage of it. And I don't know if we will ever um, get to model chaos really well, but I don't think that's really possible, so but who knows? Chaos is, my favorite example is weather. Um, and weather is a very chaotic system because there's so much, there's so many particles in the atmosphere and there's so many different pressures and temperatures and humidity levels and all this stuff interacting with one another. And so it's very sensitive to initial conditions and, and turbulence is also very important. And, and I think of like tornadoes and stuff because tornadoes form, I, I'm no expert, but they form through 
you know, wind or something passing around an object and then it creates a vortice and somehow that vortice gets amplified via weather and pressure and temperature. And then you get this massive tornado, which can, you know, cause havoc and hurricanes. Like, again, I don't really know, but they're, they're like bigger tornadoes <laughs> kind of, um, but we've gotten pretty good at modeling the weather, even though it's, it's chaotic. Like, I don't know, 50 years ago, you could maybe model the weather like a day in advance semi-accurately, but like today we can get like a week in advance. And again, it's not perfect because you're never going to get perfect with a chaotic system like you're saying, but we can model a week in advance like fairly well. You can say on this day, it's going to be a high of five and a low of minus two, and it's going to be rainy. And most of the time it's like fairly accurate. Um, so these, these weather, these meteorologists and these, um, scientists who do this, they have these really good computers which are constantly taking in new data. And I think that's one key aspect of trying to model long-term chaotic systems is that you're always inputting new data that's coming in from the system on the spot. Because again, it's so sensitive to initial conditions that if you if you just put in the initial condition and say, all right, let's let the, the equations evolve and see what happens, you're going to get something that's different. So you have to constantly kind of feed it new information so that your initial condition it's like new initial conditions i guess yeah i think it's go back to the point of two things the first the high dimensionality right like because they have so many things and second is recur re, like recursive actions right? because you you basically what those models do is do the time evolution and you apply time evolution operator many many times and you can see how small change can lead to big change if you keep applying the same thing um uh, these same operations and you know i think that is the essence essence of the key factor that create chaos i want to touch upon how people quantify like if try to see if the system is chaotic or not there is this um, quantity called Lyapunov exponent. Um, so Lyapunov came up with it, obviously. <laughs> so it's basically a, a a number, almost like an index to see. Like I think if it's more than certain number, the system considered chaotic. It is um a number that describes the sensitivity to initial condition. And the way it was described to me, I didn't know anything about it. But I asked my friend, and he was like, "Well, you can have bread dough." and two almonds. I was like, what? <laughs> sure. So the way it works is, you know, when you make bread, right? So you need bread dough, you fold it, you need it, you fold it, you need it, you fold it. So if I put two almonds in the bread dough, right? And I always know, I always measure the distance between the two almonds. So the initial condition is I put two almonds in the bread dough. Okay, whatever, that's initial condition. And then I start folding and kneading the bread dough. And every time I fold, and it's, it's an operation, right? So the change, the distance between two almonds change. So if I keep folded to the end I, and I bake it, so almonds going to be in a certain distance from one another. But if I slightly change the initial condition, I move the almond a little bit at the beginning, and I do the same, I fold it again, you know, and I bake it. The distance between those two almonds is gonna be completely different than the one I did before, and for that the ratio of 
of the distance between elements for different conditions um, would be the 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 well. It's not exactly that. There are some mathematical thing to it, but in essence, it's like the ratio of those distance, which we call the Lyapunov exponent. And that's and if the ratio is a lot, right? So it is a large distance, be, uh, large a difference between if you change the the distance a little bit, and then the almonds got really further apart, and then the system would be chaotic. That's a that's a really neat like thought experiment slash analogy. I, I actually really like that. Um, one question I have, which I don't, you may or may not have an answer to, is that, yeah, I always see people talk about these Lyapunov exponents as a measure of chaos, but they're not actually, it's not, it, this happens a lot in physics. So in, in fluid mechanics, you get something called like a, a Reynolds number, I believe, um, which measures how kind of turbulent or how laminar a flow is. And in, in, the, in chaos, it's Lyapunov exponent. But it's, there, it's not like a very specific number where it just immediately becomes chaotic. There's kind of this intermediate region where it's a little bit chaotic and a little bit not chaotic. And I think, I think that's a very interesting region where if, if your Lyapunov exponent is some value, it's not chaotic. If it's some value, it's obviously chaotic but in between this kind of this this intermediate region where it's a little bit of both and i what does that even mean how does something a little bit chaotic and a little bit not i i, I don't know i would say those stuff well i don't know this well but my 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 guess my onslaught would be that you know it, it kind of makes some sense because uh, sometimes certain initial change in the initial condition doesn't make a big change. It depends on the operations you do, right? If if you're folding in the x direction and you change stuff in y direction, why would it change? The you know the results by a lot. So so the it's about the degrees of freedom. I think uh, I don't know if people are familiar with this term, but sometimes you know systems are complicated, high dimension. But doesn't mean change in one degrees of freedom or in one direction would create this big change in the whole system. So maybe because certain things have high dimension and the way you change it doesn't necessarily create this chaotic behavior. And but however, once you get to certain, you have enough dimensions or the. Uh, uh, enough operations, it really becomes a big factor. But I'm not so sure about it. Maybe we have to correct it at some point. But so to conclude this a little bit is that chaos is one of the reasons we cannot decide human or we cannot model the create to create humans. Imagine because brains have to have so many neurons and you know, connecting really high dimension. But think about this. When you sit, if I tell you to sit, right, every time you sit down is different, like slightly different every time. I've been telling people, like, sit the exact same way you just sat. They couldn't do it. You know, maybe the hand moved differently. Maybe the feet are slightly different. So there is this like, chaotic, the unpredictability that comes with life and being chaos that come with it. But however, perhaps things will be different when we master this neural networks and machine learning things because we have created this high dimensional system that perhaps 
exhibit some lifelike behavior. Because to me, one of the most important code in the history is called backpropagation. Is how things learn in neural network, and because we can find a way to design this chaotic system that do something. So that's a food for thought. Well, this has certainly been a less chaotic discussion about chaos, um, with some really interesting ideas. I, I know personally, I've had some code that's not machine learning related, but certainly seems chaotic in terms of its output. But yeah, it's interesting to think about the implications of chaos in terms of the advancements of AI and even humans ourselves. But moving on, in the interest of time, away from chaos, uh, I'll tell you a couple ways in which you can reach us, especially if you have questions or if you want to come on an episode as a guest and talk about your area of research or interest, uh, we can be found on Instagram at The Hyperthesis, where you will get updates uh, for when we post episodes, as well as see some of the behind the scenes. Uh, we are also on Gmail, so you can find us, hyperthesispodcast at gmail.com. We now have a YouTube channel. We are Hyperthesis Podcast. If you just search for that in YouTube, you'll be able to find us. We are currently uh, in the process of uploading uh, all our back catalog. Uh, so that's an excellent way to share our show and enjoy it yourself. Uh, if you would like to listen to our show otherwise on different podcasting platforms, we're based out of Anchor FM and we're found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and really wherever you get your podcasts. So if you have any questions or comments or any interest in the show, feel free to reach out to us. We have many different ways that you can reach us now, including YouTube, Instagram, and email. And also feel free to leave a review of our podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. So moving on to the story uh, to wrap things up for this episode, uh, we've been talking about chaos a lot. And one very chaotic system that we are sure about the initial conditions for only one of these is the universe. Um, so there are many different theories about how the universe began that go back thousands and thousands of years. It's probably as many theories as there are cultures and people on Earth. The ancient Greeks believed that everything was derived from chaos, which instead of being this very uh, interesting concept that we've discussed was possibly a being that was kind of everywhere all at once. Um, and was a type of void state. But um, there, there are other theories, like the Christians say that there was an abyss, and then God created the earth. Um, a fun t-shirt that you always see is, in the beginning, God said, and then it's followed by the Maxwell's equations. Um, and those Maxwell's equations um, replace the word of light. Now, that is something that Despite the many disagreements that religion and science may have, they did get pretty right uh, before we knew what happened in the very beginning. And that's to say that there was a lot of light, or rather there was quite a lot of energy. So we don't exactly know how the universe began. We don't know what caused it. We don't know if it was caused. But we, we do know a couple things about the very close to the beginning. We know that the laws of physics that we know today 
broke down. Whatever laws we have today, they don't really apply at the very beginning of the universe. In fact, general relativity, which you know more about thanks to listening to one of our previous episodes, uh, breaks the universe down at its very beginning stage into a singularity with infinite temperature and infinite density. Now, there's probably some other theories out there that describe the universe in alternate methods that don't follow general relativity, but we really don't know what happened in the instant that the universe began. But we do have some pretty good guesses as to what happened immediately after. Now, going back to right after the very beginning, we'll start with the very smallest time that you can possibly have, which is the Planck time. So this is about 10 to the negative 43 seconds. There's not really a good scale to compare that to. It's just a very, very short amount of time. And that's essentially the smallest time that we know of. We'll have to get into that more when we talk about quantum mechanics. But just know that the universe began, and then the next possible instant later, things started to happen. Now, it was still very dense and very hot, with temperatures going up to 10 to the power of 32 degrees. Again, if it's hard to describe, but if you have a piece of paper with you, just write one with 32 zeros, and that's how hot the universe was. Now, I, I know sometimes as people in Canada, um, 32 degrees is too hot. So 10 to the power of 32 degrees is unimaginable. Now, at this time, this is known as the Planck Epoch because the universe was one Planck time old, and it was also one Planck length, which is a, a very, very small length, about 1.6 times 10 to the negative 35 meters. That's much, much smaller than even the the quarks that make up the protons and the atoms and our bodies and everywhere. So it's a, a very small length, but the universe, everything that we see was contained within this very, very small size. Now, in this very dense, very hot, very early universe, all the forces were unified. So the four forces that we know of today are the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, gravity, and the electromagnetic force. But way back when, when the universe was, again, very, very young, all these forces were the same. There was just one all-encompassing force that described everything. So again, we don't really have a physics model to describe that because gravity and quantum mechanics aren't really unified at this point. So maybe if we find a unified theory of gravity and quantum mechanics, we'll have a better idea of what this early universe looked like. But not much happened. It was almost in a stable state for, again, a very short amount of time. But given the age of the universe at this time, it may have seemed like an eternity. Now, at 10 to the negative 37 seconds, the universe truly began and it started to inflate. Now, this is a phase transition that occurred going from the stable state to the state of cosmic inflation and the very hot, dense, but stable singularity began to exponentially grow. With this growth, um, everything started to spread out a bit more and the temperature started to drop. 
um, losing about 100,000 degrees Kelvin in the process. And it really rapidly expanded to the point where the effects of quantum mechanics actually started to take effect. Uh, in particular, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and um, some other effects that, again, we'll have to get into in a future episode, led to a very slight unevenness in the energy distribution of the universe. So it could have been all equally distributed, but because of these very tiny little quantum fluctuations, these different areas of density or these initial conditions that were set out at the very beginning would go on to have a very large effect on the actual structure of the universe that we know today. Now, uh, as these effects and these, I guess, uneven distributions began to appear in the universe, it was still expanding. And as it advanced through time, mind you, this is many, many orders of magnitude smaller than a second, the strong nuclear fo force was the first to split off. So this is the force that keeps atomic nuclei together, and this is the first force that split from this, I guess, all-encompassing force. So you were left with the strong nuclear force, and then a combination of uh, electromagnetism and the weak force. Gravity split off just a little bit beforehand, um, and it was the first force to kind of divide and go its own way. Now, this left the universe in what's known as the electroweak epoch, and the, this cosmic inflation that started, I guess, a very long time ago for the universe, stopped at about 10 to the negative 32 seconds. And by this time, the universe had grown 10 to the power of 78 times its original size, which is quite a lot of growth and not a lot of time. However, it was still very, very hot and very dense, with elementary particles flying everywhere at relativistic speeds. And it's suggested at this point that everything was equal parts matter and antimatter. However, something called baryogenesis, which we'll definitely have to get into, led to matter taking over antimatter. So there were collisions that happened that eventually matter won out, and that's what we have in our universe today. Now, as the universe started cooling, the electromagnetic, the electromagnetic force and the weak nuclear force also separated, and the four forces as we know them today um, began to exist after a femtosecond uh, after the universe started. At a microsecond old, all the high-speed elementary particles start to cool, forming protons and neutrons. So they start to coalesce um, in what's known as a quark-gluon plasma started to kind of separate, and then things really started to slow down. Now, at one second, the universe was dominated by photons and was about 1 billion Kelvin, so still quite hot, but definitely a lot cooler than what it was at the very beginning. And as it began to cool and expand even more, the, all the particles began to spread out, um, and Again, at one second, it was about the density of the Earth's atmosphere. Now, here, the things really start to slow down, and atoms didn't start forming until about 380,000 years after the universe began. Now, these new atoms would start to emit radiation, 
which we still see today has the cosmic microwave background. So we still have signatures of these newly formed atoms emitting radiation. Since, again, it was still quite hot. Now, those regions of varying density that I talked about earlier, those would go on to have very, very profound effects. Um, they would start to coalesce as gravity became involved and speed slowed down of particles. And these coalescing particles began to form stars. And because there were these differing densities of particles, forming stars. There were many, many clouds of hydrogen forming these stars, which start to form the galaxies. And again, because of these, this unevenness in the very beginning of the universe, these galaxies were pretty close to each other, so they start forming clusters. And all of these different astronomical structures are what we see today. We see galactic clusters, we see galaxies, we see stars forming. Now, this may not have happened if these random quantum fluctuations hadn't been present. And it's interesting to think about how different the universe would look to us had there been, say, uh, a fluctuation not quite in the same place that led to a denser region, which is where we call the Milky Way. Now, also at this time, what helped the coalescing particles was dark matter. We still have yet to know what dark matter is, but it made up 27% of the universe and has stayed about the same. Uh, and this really helped accelerate the clumping of matter together in the galaxies we see today. Now, as the um, universe continues to grow and expand, it's actually accelerating, or it's proposed to be accelerating, because of dark energy that's present. Now, we have no idea what dark energy is. And that will have to be uh, a discussion for another time. But it's driving the expansion of the universe and winning out against the power of gravity, trying to pull it back in. Now, again, there's a lot of research going on with this, so we don't know too much. But we do know a couple things about how the universe will end. Because it's not a true story without an end. In this case, there are many different theories that have come and gone. The Big Crunch is personally one of my favorite, even if it's probably not going to happen, where gravity wins out and the universe starts collapsing and collapsing and then goes back to its singularity before maybe spreading out again in another Big Bang. Now, the more likely option is the heat death of the universe, where the dark energy wins out and it just keeps expanding and expanding. And eventually everything will become too far away from each other. All the stars will burn out. And the temperature goes from being an extremely hot place in the beginning to essentially nothing happening in the end. And this, I guess, cold, dead thing. Regardless of how the universe ends, we are still much closer to the beginning than we are to the end. Regardless of what that end is. So I encourage you to go look at the night sky and, that, and look at stars that are millions or billions of light years away and realize that at one point, those stars that are so far away, ones that we might not even be able to see, were at one point right next to us. And because of some little weird quirk in quantum mechanics, we have these beautiful galaxies and stars and the Earth that is here today. All right. All right, thank you, Patrick, for the 
wonderful story. You know, there's a lot of things that can kind of come out of this chaotic system, and one of them is our universe. It's pretty interesting to hear. Anyways, in interest of time, we should both stop it here. We'll see you guys next week, and have a great day. See ya. Bye, everyone.